All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Haggai. I know you don't know where that is. Go to the table of contents, look it up toward the end of the Old Testament before you get to Matthew. And let's pray. God, I just pray you would open your word up to our hearts and open our hearts up to your word. Edit me as necessary. In Jesus' name, amen. So about 10 years ago, um, an event I'd been waiting for for decades finally happened. And a lot of people, not just me, were excited about it. And so they planned actually like a, like a worship service to celebrate this event. Now, I was bummed out. I couldn't go to this worship service. It was far away from where I was living at the time. My brother-in-law got to go, and I was jealous that he got to go. And instead, I had to settle for watching it live. I took part of the morning off of work, and I watched this event live as they celebrated. Over a million people went to this worship service. Uh, And I was one of the many more who watched it live uh, streaming on the internet. It had everything you would expect from a worship service. It had uh, celebration, adoration, it had raising of hands, it had, you know, shouts of praise, it had singing, financial sacrifice, uh, even sermons, many sermons, some short and some long. It was a special day, it was a day to celebrate, because after all, the Giants baseball team had been in San Francisco for 52 years, and it was the first time they had won the World Series. And so they had a victory parade down Market Street in the city of San Francisco, and over a million people went there in person to celebrate. And many, unfortunately, not just to celebrate, but to worship. Um, we're wired for worship. This is just one example of the way we're wired for worship. For some, some people, they go to political rallies to worship. Uh, Other people, they go to football stadiums to worship. Now, I can tell you, we all, many of us were at the Marlins game last night, and no one goes to the Marlins game to worship because, (laughs) people are worshiping at the altar of what we call the killer bees, ball games, birthday parties, brunches, boating excursions. In all of this, whether people realize it or not, they're, they're demonstrating that God has built into them this need to give themselves to something in, in praise, to pour themselves towards something in worship. They need, and you need, I need, we all need to worship something. God designed us this way. There's no other way for us to live in this world. We will worship something. God created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And when the story of the Bible, if you know anything about the Bible, you know the story of the Bible is, is long and complex, but at the end of the day, it's really, really simple. God created people, people sinned and turned away from God, but God loved them enough that he didn't want to leave them in that sin, and so he sent his one and only son, God the Son, in human flesh to live the perfect life that they should have lived but didn't, to die the sinner's death they deserved, and then to be buried, raised from the dead, and to be exalted as the king of all kings and the king of all things, and that anyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in that son, Jesus Christ, will be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God and have the worship that they are designed for reoriented in the right direction. At Cross United, we believe that Jesus meant it when he said that he came so that we could have life and have it in abundance. We believe that he meant that. And we believe that we experience abundant life when we are brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
when we're brought together in authentic community, and when we're empowered for the mission and the purpose Jesus has for us in the world. And this June, what we're doing in this little tiny book of Haggai, hopefully you found it, and is, I, we, we were talking about this week, I may accidentally say Haggai, but if I do that, say boo, because that's not right, it's Haggai. We're studying this little tiny book because what he offers us is a vision of how to be renewed in these three core values of our church, worship, community, and mission. Um, you see, the people of God in that day were not so different than the people of God us today. They, had, they lived in a society where they had become a minority, where the overarching power was not in favor of them, where most people didn't believe what they believed. As Christians, we become increasingly a minority and marginalized in our society, at least if we're going to take what we believe seriously and actually believe it from beginning to end. The people of God in Haggai's day, they, they had experienced the trauma of God's discipline. Haggai uh, was prophesying in about 520 BC, but what you may not know is that 70 years before that, God's people had been disciplined. They'd been exiled from their homeland. They disobeyed God. And so in 605 BC, God had sent the Babylonians and they took a wave of the population of Judah and the land of Israel and they took them to Babylon. One of the, the people they took is someone you probably heard of, someone I was named after, and that is Daniel, the prophet. He was taken. And then in 597, eight years later, they took another wave of, of these, these people, and they deported them to Babylon. And with that group, there was a man named Ezekiel who wrote another book of the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel. And then finally, the worst one in 586 BC, after almost 20 years of this traumatic deportation and this, this slow bleed of, of people away from the land, they deport uh, a, another large group and they destroy the temple of God that Solomon had built hundreds of years before, a symbol of God's presence among the people. And it was totally destroyed. And Haggai picks up the story of 70 years after this, because God had promised through Jeremiah and others that the, the number of years of their exile would be 70 years. And here we are 70 years later, and God is keeping his promises. There's a king named Cyrus who comes to power, and he, uh, he says that the people of Israel, they can go back home, and they can start rebuilding the temple, and he's even going to pay for it. And he said, you can use my resources, you can rebuild your temple, you'll have my protection, everything you need. And they start, it starts off great, and then they lose heart. If you look at Ezra 4.24 here, um, now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius or Darius of Persia. So the, the people were tired. They were burnt out. They were discouraged. It wasn't easy, and so they stopped. In, in our season as a new church, um, you might be tempted to feel this way. It's, it's hard. It's harder than we expected. It doesn't grow as quickly as we thought. You know what? There's a lot of people who don't care about church, whether it's an old church or a new church. There's a lot of people who are so far from the Lord that going to church on Sunday is the last thing on their minds. But in, in this moment, what God is doing is he's raising up the voice of Haggai and he's saying to us, don't lose heart. It is still time to build. Look at the next verse in Ezra chapter five. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah 
son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, What's going on? All right, I'll just keep reading it from my notes. And Joshua, son of Josedach, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. See, for Israel, it wasn't possible for them to have right worship without the temple. So their failure to rebuild the temple was not just a construction problem. It was a worship problem. It was a crisis of worship. They had missed the point. They had misdirected their worship. And what what God did is God loved them too much to let them stay in that place. He loved them too much to let them ignore the temple and to waste their lives building their own houses. And the, the thing is, He loves us too much. He loves us too much to let us lose vision and to have misdirected worship. He loves us too much to let us build things that don't matter. So he's calling us back to wholehearted worship. So what we're going to see this morning in Haggai 1 is five ways to return. Five ways to return to wholehearted worship. So you're in Haggai 1, and as you would expect, the story starts in Daniel chapter 9. You see, we can't start with Haggai 1. You can keep, keep your hand in Haggai 1. You don't have to turn to Daniel 9. I'll have some of the verses on the screen. Daniel's a famous prophet. You might know about Daniel. That's one of the you know, Sunday school verses, Daniel in the lion's den. You know, and, and the veggie tales, immortalized. You know? Oh, no, what are we going to do? The king likes Daniel more than anyone? No? Okay, that's good. <laughs> we see in Daniel 9 is the first step to return to wholehearted worship is to pray for renewal in Daniel chapter 9. 20 years before Haggai's ministry, Daniel, he's old. He's like 80s old. He's, he's at the end of his life, a faithful witness in Babylon, having been brought there as a teenager and been a faithful leader and witness of, for the people and, and to the people for decades now at the end of his life. He sees that the temple is still in shambles and the time is getting close where it's supposed to be rebuilt. And so he goes to the Lord. Look what he says in Daniel chapter 9. I, Daniel, understood from the uh, books according to the word of the Lord. We should have the verses here on the screen. Do we have these verses on the screen? Um, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So it's going to be 70 years until the temple's rebuilt. But Daniel doesn't see that as any, say, oh, well, God's going to do it. It's a prophecy. I don't have to do anything. No, this puts him on his knees. So I turn my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petition with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He continues in verses 4 and 5, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. He doesn't just say, I'm sorry, I messed up. He says it like over and over in different words because he really feels the weight of the failure of the people. And he continues, 
All Israel has broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. So he's confessing the sin. Now look what he asked the Lord in verse 16. Lord, in keeping with your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people has become an object of ridicule to those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. He's praying there about the temple being rebuilt. That's what he's praying for. May your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. You see that right here. 20 years later, God answers that prayer by bringing Haggai to the people to call them back to the mission God had for them. God sent Haggai to answer Daniel's prayer. The thing is, Daniel was dead. Haggai was there, but Daniel was dead. He didn't see his prayer answered, but his prayer lived long after him. We need people who, re- who will repent and lament on behalf of the sin of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will pray, our oh, Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, by your spirit, I confess that we have failed. We have pursued political power. We have pursued our own comfort. We have neglected the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. We have betrayed the truth. We've let false teachers tickle our ears with things that we want to hear but are not true. Forgive us. Send your your spirit to lead us into righteousness. For you sent your son to die for our sins. For the sake of your name and the church that's called by your name. Revive us, Lord. We need prayer warriors. That's the first step of wholehearted worship, to pray and seek God. Now we can jump into Haggai chapter 1. And the second way of return to wholehearted worship, listen to God. Listen to God. Haggai 1.1. In the second year of King Darius, in the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The most important thing in this verse and the most important thing in this book is that the word of the Lord came. The date matters. He gives a date. The king matters. He tells us the king. The governor matters. He tells us who the governor was. The high priest matters. He tells us who the high priest was. But the hero of the book is not Darius the king. It's not Zerubbabel the governor. It's not Joshua the high priest. It's not Haggai the prophet. The hero is the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has shown himself to his people. Here we even see a hint of the Trinity itself. Because John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when it says the Word of the Lord, it's telling us there, there is a Father and a Son. There is a Speaker and a Word who exist eternally and reveal to us the truth of who He is and who we are. And if God has spoken, if He's spoken to us in the words of Haggai and all the other books of this book called the Bible, now I know none of you probably have a paper copy and that's fine. You all have it on your phone and that's fine too because it's still the same Word of God. I don't care where it is. If it's on your iPad, your iPhone, or in a printed copy, it's the same Word of God. The point is you should be so saturated in the Scripture that you can smell it on you. You know, as a church planner, I don't have an 
I have, well, our ascending church has graciously given me a room as a study in an office, and I work there usually about one day a week, but most of the time, I just, I'm out in the community, and I have a mobile office. I have my backpack, and I said earlier, our church office is my cell phone. That's the number on all of our material. And so I go, and I take my office with me, and I go to Starbucks, and I work, and I prepare sermons, and I do administrative stuff and email and all sorts of stuff. And I'm at Starbucks, and you know, by the time I'm at Starbucks three, four hours, and I leave, I smell like coffee. They're grinding the coffee, and I get home, and I smell like coffee because I've been in an environment where coffee is in the air. Here's the deal. You should be so saturated with the Bible that you smell like it. You smell like Jesus. You smell like the Holy Spirit. And you might need to delete the stuff that crowds out his voice. You might need to delete your Instagram app. You might need to delete your Snapchat app. I had to delete my Netflix and my Amazon app because they were drowning out the voice of God in my life. I was writing this sermon yesterday, and I, had to de- I just got convicted by my own sermon. I deleted my Twitter app because it was drowning out the voice of God. You need to do whatever it takes for the word of God to settle on you so that it saturates your heart and your mind. Because it's, it's, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it in this culture if the word of God is not foremost in your mind and in your heart and saturating you so that it comes out of your pores like someone who's been sitting in a coffee shop in the smell of coffee. It's not a legalistic requirement. It's not like do this or you're going to hell. It's God has spoken and you have the opportunity to hear from him. That's the second thing. Listen to God. The third thing, ignore the common sense consensus because it's wrong. Verse 2, the Lord of armies says this, these people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to geek you out a little bit and show you some of the original language here. So let me back up so you can see the screen a little bit. So the word for Lord of armies is Yahweh Sabaoth, and you can see that it's written in Hebrew. If you don't know, Hebrew reads this way to this way. So, you know, make sure though, make sure you have a Hebrew, before you go get yourself a Hebrew tattoo, make sure you have someone who knows Hebrew look at it because you don't want it to say something that you don't want it to say. Anyway, (laughs) Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel, the one true and living God who created all things and chose a people for himself through the man Abraham. And Sabaoth, of armies, the one who rules over the cosmos, over all of the universe. It's really interesting. The first words of the book of Haggai are the words in the year of King Darius. But the last words of the book of Haggai are, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, the one true and living God. And this God brings a charge. It says, these people say, and I think I have this one up here too for you. These people say, and this in Hebrew is lo et bo. Lo, say it with me, lo et bo. This means in English, the time has not yet come. It's not yet time. But you read it in Hebrew and it's like a little... Sl- Lo et bo. It's like a little slogan. And what would happen is these people had this little slogan they would say to each other to excuse to one another and to convince each other that it's okay that we're not rebuilding the temple. Lo et bo. It's not time yet. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. It's okay that we're investing in our house instead of Yahweh's house. It's not time. Lo et bo. And they bought into the slogan. They bought into this little limerick that had 
infiltrated their hearts and minds, but was not true. After the Bible was written, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, it was translated into Greek. And the word for time in Greek is the word kairos, kairos. And the word for kairos is not like, what time is it? Like it's now, what time is it? 12, 20 p.m. I got to hurry up because the kids workers get antsy if we go a little too long. It's, the word kairos is more like our word season or appointed time. It's not the right season. It's not the right season. These people were saying the slogan to each other, Lo, Bo, it's not time. It's not the right season. Some of you say, when I have kids, I'm going to get serious about church again. Or when I finish high school, I'm going to stop pretending and really start living it. Or when my kids are older, then I'll have time to volunteer and to serve. Or when I have more money, I'll start to tithe. Or I just need to focus on blank in this season. I just need to focus on career in this season. You know, I really need to focus on my family in this season. You know, I really need to focus on school in this season. I really need to focus on myself in this season. Lo it's not time yet. It's not time to worship and build the house of the Lord. The problem is with common sense is that sometimes it's common nonsense. It's not true. It's an excuse for ignoring our privilege of wholehearted worship. When this happens, what God does is he loves us too much to let us believe lies, and so he brings discipline into our lives. That's the fourth thing, the fourth way of wholehearted worship. Learn from the loving discipline of the Lord. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verse 3. Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, what's it talking about there? Well, when Solomon built the temple, he did something that was luxurious and orna- like ornamented the temple with something like that would have been expensive and rare, and that is he got cedar wood, and he paneled the inside of the house with wood. Look at 1 Kings 6, verse 9 should be up there behind me. When he finished building the temple, he paneled it with boards and planks of cedar. So when the, when the Lord says, this people are living in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins, what he's doing is he, he's contrasting what Solomon had done to build a glorious house for the Lord and what this people were doing, and that was building glorious houses for themselves. Too often we believe in oxygen mask Christianity. You know, when you get on a plane and, you know, they do the little demonstration and they say, if we lose cabin pressure, the oxygen mask is going to fall down, right? And what do they always say? Put on your own oxygen mask first before trying to help others. Because if you're passed out, you can't be any much help to anybody. So get your own mask on first and, and then you can help others. And what And there's some things where this is true. Like if you're so spiritually unhealthy or so emotionally unhealthy or physically unhealthy that you can't even serve, then then that's no good. You're no good to anyone and you can't serve anyone in, in any meaningful way. But what our sinful hearts do is they turn this truth into something that becomes an excuse for selfishness. We say, well, if I don't focus on myself first, I can't help anyone else. But then we never get around to actually helping anyone else. 
Sin has corrupted. The virus of sin has corrupted our programming so that we are wired to be selfish and to serve ourselves. And this is what this people had done. And this is what the Lord says. Verse 5, Now says the Lord of armies, think carefully about your ways. This was paraphrased by a wise man years ago that, who said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Verse 6, I've, you've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never enough to be happy. You put on clothes but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. What the Lord is saying here is that their frustration and futility in every area of their life is a direct result of their failure to worship him rightly. They'd focused on their own houses, and the Lord was disciplining them. Because it wasn't wrong to build their own houses, but it was wrong to build their own houses instead of the house of the Lord. And Because he loved them, he was disciplining them. Sometimes we think suffering in our life is a result of um, God being angry at us, or maybe God has abandoned us, but that's exactly the opposite. Because like any loving father on Father's Day, the Bible teaches us, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God disciplines us because he loves us. My son, do not take lightly the Lord's discipline, or lose heart when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You can see kids who are running wild, and their parents are not paying attention and don't care. And then you see kids who are disciplined and their parents take the time and the effort and the energy to correct them and to discipline them when they've gone wrong. Which one has the parents who truly love them? God loves you too much to let you stay where you are. And if you're truly is, you're going you're gonna to be miserable until you turn back to him. The Lord of Armies says this, verses 7 and 8. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. In the New Testament, we see that the house of God is not a physical building, but a spiritual people. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22 says, In Christ, in Him, the whole body being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord tells us that the temple is not a physical building and that worship is not a, just a Sunday activity, but it's all of life. Wholehearted worship is not just about feeling good emotionally when you sing on Sunday morning. Wholehearted worship is about a life of serving God through faith and repentance all throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What does God want for you today? What does God want from you? He wants you to know Him, love Him, and trust Him in Jesus Christ. He wants you to trust Him and know Him, love Him, and have Him be the center of your world, and from that, to join Jesus in Jesus' construction project. And Jesus' construction project, all throughout the Bible, it tells us, is to build His church by making disciples for the glory of God. The most valuable thing you will do with your life is investing in building the church by making disciples for the glory of God. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm not saying that because it's my job and I work for the church and so I have to get people to want to build the church. No, I am a pastor because that's true. 
Building the church is valuable enough to give your life to. There are 114 times where the word church is used in the New Testament. Almost 90 of those. That's like most. Again, not good at math, but I know 90 out of 114, that's most. The vast majority of times the Bible talks about the church, it refers to a specific local congregation. The way God builds big C church throughout the world is by us investing and building in our little C local church where we are. God is building his kingdom through local churches. And the best thing you can do with your life, the most valuable thing you will ever do is love and know God and invest in his local church. And that will all outlast you. That will be an investment that will bear fruit beyond your own lifetime. And anything less than that is really wasted. This is what these people had done. Look at verses 9 through 11 as we finish just this section and then we get to the fifth point. You expected much, but it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to the house, I ruined it. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, I, I blew it away. It was so worthless, I could blow it away. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy to his own house. Literally, again, it says, each of you runs to his own house. You are so invested in your own things that you've neglected me completely. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on man and animal and all that your hands produce. God is disciplining them because he loves them. And God is disciplining you if you are in a season of discipline to bring you back to himself. He loves you too much to let you settle for anything less. You don't have to turn to him from your misdirected worship in an effort to make him love you or in an effort to please him or make him proud. You look at great people throughout history and people that accomplished the best things. And often if you look into their story, they had a father who they couldn't please. And that father may be 10, 20, 30 years dead and they're still trying to make their father proud. You don't have to do that with your father. Your father loves you. Your father gave his son for you. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to earn his love. His love is already yours in Christ. And what God said to Jesus in his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God says over you if you are in Christ. You don't have to earn his love. And turning away from misdirected worship is not to earn his favor, but because he loves you enough to bring you back to him. You have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove and you have nothing to lose. So here's the final culminating call. Fifth way, repent and believe. Repent and believe, verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua and Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God. And the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you, 
This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. They heard it, and they believed it, and they obeyed. Another word for this is repented. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. So it's to recognize you're going the wrong way, to feel sorry you're going the wrong way, and to turn around and go the right way. It means feeling bad about your sin, but actually changing your behavior. It means turning away from those things which are displeasing to the Lord and turning away and turning toward in faith to God and all God has for you in Christ. Some of you have never done that. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. You've never accepted his free gift of forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life. You've never done that. And you need to do that for the first time. There's a story of a, a British, famous British Baptist pastor named Benjamin Keach. This guy was old school, like seven, 16, 1600s. He was famous. Everyone knew who he was. It's like the Joel Osteen of the 1600s, but with good theology. And everyone knew Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach had a son named Elias, Elias Keach. Elias Keach was not a Christian, but everyone assumed he was because his, his dad was Benjamin Keach. Elias Keach went from Britain and came to America in the 1680s. And he had no other way to support himself, and everyone already assumed he was a good Christian. He pretended to be a pastor. And he started a church in Philadelphia that grew because he was the son of the famous pastor everyone knew. And they assumed this guy must be a good Christian and a good pastor because his dad is Benjamin Keach. And so they started this church and he was not a Christian. He's preaching one day uh, the sermon that he didn't believe. And as he's preaching the gospel and telling people about what God had done for them in Jesus Christ, the spirit convicted his heart and he got saved at his own sermon. Amen. <laughs> Some of you may need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for the first time. Some of you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for the thousandth time. You need to return to the Lord in wholehearted worship. You've been building a paneled house for yourself and you've left the Lord's house in ruin. It's not the problem with the season, it's a problem with your worship. Y'all, it's time to build. It's time to build until one day we're going to gather with not a million people at a baseball parade or at a political inauguration, but at a worship service with more than people than anyone can count from every place, every tribe, every tongue, yeah. every family, every nation. And we're not going to be saying, low at bow, it's not time. We're not going to be saying, go Giants, although I think actually everyone there will be a Giants fan. <laughs> we're not going to be saying, it's time for change, like Barack Obama's campaign. We're not going to be saying, make America great again, like Donald Trump's campaign. What we're going to be saying is, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and yeah. blessing. Yeah. Blessing and glory and honor and power to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever 
and ever. Let's pray.